First John chapter two, verse 15, love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. Now, just in case you haven't figured this out, I think you know this, but in case you haven't figured it out, this present world is Satan's realm. In Revelation chapter 2 and verse 13, Jesus was speaking to the church at Pergamos. By the way, Pergamos, Pergamio, is two Greek words which means twice married. Pergamos tried to be married to the world and married to God at the same time. You can't do that. Israel found that out the hard way. And it seemed like many of God's people hadn't found that out today. But he was speaking to the church at Pergamos. And he said this, I know where Satan's seat is. God knows where What are you talking about Satan's seat? The word seat here is the word for throne. The Lord said to this church, I know where Satan's throne is. And by implication, throne indicates power. Here was a church that was not serving the Lord, but wanted to bear his name. And so the Lord said, I know what's going on. Satan's circuit is throughout the world, folks. But I think his throne is often in some places that are infamous for sin and for wickedness. And of course, I'm going to name first Hollywood. If you look at what's coming out of there these days, I don't know why any professed child of God would even want to darken the doors of a theater and give their money to what's coming out. Places of wickedness and error and cruelty. Ancient Rome was one of those places. Believers were persecuted in Rome. Many, many of them put to death. I mentioned Hollywood. How about, and this would get me in trouble, but I'm going to say it, Washington, D.C. You think Satan's throne is in Washington, D.C. today? You think he's got an element of power there? He certainly does. And the seat of persecution of believers is Satan's seat. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4, Satan is called the God, little g, the God of this world. But if our gospel be hid, it is hid to them that are lost. Well, why can't they understand the gospel? Why can't they hear the preaching about Jesus Christ and repent and be saved? In whom the God of this world hath blinded the minds of them which believe not, lest the light of the glorious gospel of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine unto them. Why can't people hear the gospel and be saved? Many do not hear the gospel and be saved today because Satan is blinding them to the truth. He's blinding their minds. We are living in the middle of the enemy's camp today. We are living in the midst of a modern day Sodom and Gomorrah in this nation and I believe in the world. Many years ago we had an instructor in seminary who said this and I've tried to keep his quote just like he said it. He said, if you want to know what is wrong with the Lord's churches today, just go to Walmart and look around at all the things you want but you can't have. Right? And today we'd have to add not only at Walmart, look at internet, go online and go to Amazon and look at all they they got some neat things there, don't they? And we might like to have them. How about the new car dealerships? How about the new boat dealerships? We can go to all of those places and we can see things that we would love to have. Can't afford them, but we would love to have them. You know what happens? These things cause many of God's people, when they get them, if they get them, to spend time away from church, to spend time away from serving God. 
or it causes many of God's people to take that second and third job that keeps them from coming to church to be able to pay for those things that they want but they can't afford. In our text, John names three traps that the world, the flesh, and the devil all use against us as believers. And they try to keep us from worshiping and serving God the way God wants us to worship Him and the way God wants us to serve Him. Remember, John's writing to people in 1 John, and at the end of this book, in chapter 5, verse 13, he gives one of his purposes for writing the book, that you may know that you have eternal life. So he's writing to save people. He's not writing to the lost world. He's writing to people just like you and me. And he's saying, look, these things are out there. And the world, the flesh, and the devil is offering them. And he names them. Lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. We're going to look at that in just a moment. But it's not unusual that Satan would use our flesh against us, is it? That's been his method from the beginning. If you just go back, and we're going to go back for just a moment to Genesis chapter 3. You say we go from one end of the Bible to the other. Well, that's the best way to study it, you know. Study the Bible with the Bible. But in Genesis chapter 3, and he's, Satan's tempting Eve. But the first thing he says is this. He asks her a question. Yea, hath God said. Now, did God really mean that? Is this really what God says? Do you really have to listen to God? Do you really have to obey the Word of God? And of course the answer is yes, but he says, as God said, and then they're talking about the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and the fruit of that tree. And look at what it says here in Genesis 3 when Eve looked at this tree in verse 6 at what happens. And when this woman saw that the tree was what? Good for food. I'd like to have a bite of that right now. Hey, wouldn't a big juicy steak taste pretty good right now? Uh-huh, yeah, that's the lust of the flesh, isn't it? <laughs> My flesh wants it. Which would you rather have, bologna or steak? Well, we'd rather, see, we're used to eating sometimes preacher steak, that's bologna, then there's real steak. But which would you rather have? And sometimes Eve looks at this fruit, and the appearance to her was that it would be really good for food. Now, God had said, don't eat of it. But you know, that looks like that would taste pretty good. And then the scripture says it was pleasant to the eyes. It was something to look upon. I've heard people say, some have said that it was an apple. Some have said it was a tomato. I don't know what it was. Whatever this fruit was, it looked good and it looked like it would taste good. And then look at what else it says. It was a tree to be desired to make one wise. There's the pride of the life. I want to be thought of one with wisdom. I want to be thought of as an intelligent individual, a wise individual. And so God had said, this is the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Hey, if I eat of this, I'll have the knowledge of good and evil. And so it was a tree to be desired to make one wise. There's the lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. We'll go over from Genesis chapter 3, and you probably know where we're going, but in Matthew chapter 4, Satan tried to tempt Jesus the same way. Now, Matthew chapter 4, Jesus had been 40 days and 40 nights in the wilderness fasting. He's about to begin what we call his public ministry. But he's been out in the wilderness. He has been fasting and Satan, the scripture says, comes to him. And when Satan comes to him, look at the first thing he does. Now, look at verse 2 first though. And when he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, he was afterward and hungered. 
Hey, if you didn't eat for 40 days and 40 nights, you'd be hungry too, wouldn't you? This flesh likes and needs food. And so Jesus hadn't eaten for 40 days and 40 nights and the flesh is hungry. And so verse three says, the tempter came to him and said, if thou be the son of God, command that these stones be made bread. Hey, Jesus, if you're really who you say you are, you're starving right now. And if you're really who you say you are, why don't you just turn those stones into bread and you can eat that. The lust of the flesh. It would certainly appeal to the flesh even if you, especially if you hadn't eaten for 40 days and 40 nights for someone to offer you, if nothing else, a loaf of bread. Of course, Jesus answered him with scripture, thou shalt not live by bread alone. It is written, thou shalt not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. Look down to verse eight. And again, the devil taketh him up into an exceeding high mountain and showeth him all the kingdoms of the world and the glory of them and saith unto him, all these things will I give thee if thou will fall down and worship me. Takes him up, says, here's, by the way, whose kingdoms were they really? They were really the Lord's. Satan's the God of this world, but it all belongs to God. But he shows Jesus all this. And, you know, it's like somebody taking you to, I don't know, into the bank where you bank and walking you into the vault and saying, now look at all this. Look at all this money right here. If you'll just do this, you can have all this money. And Satan says to Jesus, if you'll just fall down and worship me, all of these kingdoms will be yours. And Jesus answered him and said, Get thee behind me, Satan, or get thee hence, Satan, for it is written, Thou shalt worship the Lord thy God, and him only shalt thou serve. I'm not going to fall down and worship you. I'm going I'm to worship God. I'm going to worship the Father. And I think he may have been thinking, all oh, this is mine anyway, right? And then you go back to verses 5 and 6. I don't know how I skipped them, but back to verses 5 and 6. He says, Then the devil taketh him up into the holy city, that's Jerusalem, and setteth him on a pinnacle of the temple, and saith unto him, If thou be the Son of God, cast thyself down. For it is written, He shall give his angels charge concerning thee, and in their hands they shall bear thee up, lest at any time thou dash thy foot against a stone. Pride of life. If you really are who you say you are, you say you're the Son of God. If you really are, jump off. Because it's written, and see here Satan twists scripture a little bit. It's written that I'll catch you and I'll bear you up and so forth. And Jesus answered him, it is written again, thou shalt not tempt the Lord thy God. And that's why in the book of Hebrews, the fourth chapter, the scripture says Jesus was tempted in all points like as we are yet without sin. When we're tempted to sin as God's people, we can always find that temptation in one of these three areas. And we're going to look at those in a moment. We'll find it in one of these three areas and we can know that our Lord has been through a similar temptation. He was without sin and so the scripture said, therefore we can come boldly unto the throne of grace and find grace to help in time of need. Satan attacks us today and his attacks seem to be getting more frequent and his attacks seem to be getting stronger and stronger and stronger the closer we get to the coming of the Lord. But that shouldn't surprise us, folks. Revelation chapter 12, verse 10. Woe unto the inhabitants of the earth, it says, because of this. For the accuser of our brethren is cast down, which accused them before God day and night. That's Satan. He's been cast out of heaven. We know that at some point Satan had access to God, didn't he? Just read the book of Job. Where have you been? I've been going throughout the world. And, and then he comes before God and accuses Job or says that Job wouldn't serve God. And we know how that turned out for him. 
But Revelation chapter 12, verse 12, here's why we ought to be concerned. For the devil has come down unto you, listen to this, having great wrath because he knoweth that he hath but a short time. Satan's been cast down to the earth. And he knows he doesn't have much time to drag souls into hell with him. And so he's active. He's working. He's doing his best to get as many blinded to the gospel as he can. And that's why you and I need to follow the instruction of the scriptures in Ephesians chapter 6 verse 11 which say what? Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. Folks, if ever we needed the armor of God, what is the armor of God? Well, he talks about the breastplate of righteousness to protect our hearts. You need your heart protected today. See, you need to not only be saved, but you need to know that you're saved. And you need to know that you know that you're saved, okay? Because I tell you what, Satan will do his best to cause even God's people to question their salvation. When he gets you questioning your salvation, he may get you out of the service of God. Then he talks about the helmet of salvation. What does the helmet of salvation do? It protects your mind. See, we need our minds protected. There's all kinds of things, out there, not just worldly things out there to affect our minds, but listen, there is so much quote unquote religion out in this world today. There's so many people that are confused as to what is the truth and what is error, as to what makes a true church and what makes a false church. As to whether salvation is eternal or whether you can lose it. I mean, there's just all kinds of false teaching and false preaching and false literature out there. Amen. You go to a, even some of our bookstores and you'll find books by authors. I wouldn't spend the money to buy their books because they're false teachers and they're false preachers. And so it's out there, folks. And we need our minds protected. And then we need our loins girt about with truth, our feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. We need the shield of faith. Why do we need the shield of faith? To protect us from all the fiery darts of the wicked one. Satan's just shooting arrows, shooting arrows, shooting arrows, burning arrows at us to try to destroy us as far as our service of God and our faith, our dependence upon God. We need the shield of faith and the only offensive weapon that we have, the word of God, which is the sword of the spirit. You notice there's nothing for the backside in that list of armor because we're not supposed to be turning and running. We're supposed to be moving forward with the word of God, with the sword of the spirit. And then here's the battle. See, you can get all dressed up in the armor and never go out to battle, right? Well, you can put the armor on and sit down and say, okay, you know, I got the armor on. Well, where's the battle? It's in verse 18 of that sixth chapter where he says, praying always with perseverance and supplication for the saints. We're supposed to be, the battle is going to be won on our knees. Amen. It will not be won fighting in conventional warfare, but when we get on our knees before God and we trust him when we're armored, with all the whole armor of God. So what we're going to do this morning in this message right quickly is examine these three areas of temptation and testing so we can be aware of how Satan comes against us. First of all, I want you to look over to the book of Numbers, the 11th chapter. Numbers chapter 11, verses 4 through 6, first of all. And the mixed multitude that was among them fell a lusting. Remember the children of Israel are coming out of Egypt now. The mixed multitude that was among them fell a lusting, and the children of Israel also wept again and said, Who shall give us flesh to eat? 
There's the flesh right there, right? The lust of the flesh. We, because they're being fed. You'll see that in just a moment. We remember the fish which we did eat in Egypt freely, the cucumbers and the melons, so far so good, and the leeks and the onions and the garlic. Now, I don't know why they added those three. But they said, we remember all that we used to eat down there in Egypt. And remember how good it was. But our soul is dried away and there is nothing at all beside this manna before our eyes. Do you realize what manna was? It was angel food. It was being supplied by God to feed them. And apparently it tasted whatever you wanted it to taste like. Hey, if they missed the leeks and the onions and the garlic, just imagine that it tastes like the leeks and the onions and garlic. I don't know why you would, but they would. But God's supplying for them. Now, look to chapter 21 and verse 5. And the people spake against God and against Moses. Wherefore have you brought us out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no bread, neither is there any water. And our soul loatheth this light bread. Again, talking about the manna. What God is supplying. We hate it. Tired of it. Did you ever eat something so much you got tired of it? Well, that's what they're saying. I'm just tired of eating this stuff. God may be supplying it, but I'm tired of it. I want something else. You know, there are a lot of God's people who do that. Amen. They grow tired of church. They grow tired of worshiping God. They grow tired of serving God. They grow tired of the Bible. They grow tired of just wanting to talk about Jesus and to serve God on a daily basis. And you know what they do? They quit church. They drop out. We've got a lot of those on the membership rolls of this church. Well, what is lust? We're talking about the lust of the flesh. That's what they're doing. What is lust? Well, if you look at the word, and I don't normally put the Greek words up, but I want you to see that this is the same word throughout epithemia. You may pronounce it differently if you had a different Greek instructor, but epithemia is the word, and it refers to a strong or sometimes irregular and inordinate desire or appetite that can be either good or bad. But it's a strong desire. It's a strong appetite. So we're going to see it, first of all, in a good way. Luke twenty-two fifteen. Jesus is speaking to the 12. He's, this is prior to his crucifixion. He's getting ready to go out. He's instituting what we call the Lord's Supper. And he says, with desire, I have desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. That first word talks about a strong, with a strong desire. And the second time it says, I have longed to do this. Same word. Used in a good way. He said, I've had this strong desire to sit down and eat and just long to eat this Passover supper with you. And so he's eating that Passover. It's a yearning. Have you ever been that way? You yearn to do something. You long to do something. And again, he said, I want to eat this Passover. Why? Because when he eats this Passover, you know what it's going to do? It's going to bring him closer to fulfilling the purpose of why he came into the world. Because what's going to happen? They're going to eat the Passover. He's going to go out into the Garden of Gethsemane. He's going to be betrayed by Judas Iscariot. He's going to be crucified. He's going to be buried. He's going to rise. He's going to ascend. And we have the promise of his coming back. But he had this strong desire. Listen, it is commendable to be passionate about serving God. We ought to get excited about serving God. We ought to want to serve God. In fact, in 1 John 
chapter 5, I believe it's chapter 5, he said, here's the love of God that we keep his commandments and his commandments are not grievous. They're not a burden to us. We want to do what God wants us to do. Let me give you another example. Philippians chapter 1 verse 23, Paul said, I'm in a strait betwixt two, having a desire to depart and to be with Christ which is far better, nevertheless to abide in the flesh is more needful for you. There's that word epithemia or version of it again. Paul had a passion and he was possessed by this passion of wanting to be with the Lord Jesus Christ. He said, that's better than living on this earth. I think there's a lot of God's folks that can't imagine not living on this earth. They think this is the best thing they're going to get. I got news for you. It gets better If you're a child of God, it gets better. (laughs) And I can't describe how much better it gets because I haven't experienced yet and neither of you, but we know by the word of God is going to get better. And Paul just said, I've got this, this deep desire, this longing to go and be with the Lord. James chapter four, verse five. God through James said this, do you think that the scripture saith in vain the spirit that dwelleth in us lusteth to envy? Now I know we read that and we think, what's he talking about? What's he saying? Let me give you the idea. Do you think that the scripture says to no purpose that the spirit that God has caused to dwell in us earnestly desires, there's the word, earnestly desires with a jealous love the devotion of our whole hearts to God. You know what God wants? He wants us to devote ourselves to him, our entire heart. Not just a part of, not just Lord, you got a part of me. No, he wants all of you and he wants all of me. And the Holy Spirit will cause us to realize that. Now, in a bad way, here's epithemia. It is the passion that seeks to please the flesh that will lead a person to sin. Okay, what are you talking about? James chapter 1. James chapter 1 verse 14, but every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust. His own what? (laughs) His own lust. You got lust in you. You were born with lust in you. I was born with lust in me. All that is in the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life. Not of the Father, but of the Word. It's born into us. That's in our old nature. Every man is tempted when he's drawn away of his own lust and enticed. Then when lust hath conceived, it bringeth forth sin. And sin, when it is finished, bringeth forth death. Spiritual LSD. Lust, sin, and death. Satan works on the lust that is in us naturally, normally, on that old nature, that unsaved nature, and he works on us and causes us to lust after things, and then we sin against God, and there goes our testimony. There goes our witness for Christ. Might even cost us our physical lives sometimes. The flesh is talking about that Not about this outward stuff, but it's talking about that nature that is in us. You know, we're made of flesh, but we're not to be fleshly. And Satan will work on the flesh. What are the appetites of the flesh? Well, they're mentioned in several places in the scripture. Mark chapter 4, we're just going to hit the highlights on these verses. Just bear with me and listen closely. Mark chapter 4, verse 19, Jesus is talking about things that will keep us from hearing the word of God. And he says, and the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches and the lust of other things entering in choke the word and it becometh unfruitful. Just, just the lust of other things. Luke eight fourteen, talking about the seed which fell among thorns. He says, when they have heard, talking about people hearing the word of God, 
go forth and are choked with cares and riches and pleasures of this life and bring no fruit to perfection. There's little doubt because we're human, that many times we may sit in a worship service like this where the Word of God is being preached. And I don't know if any of you are doing it. I'm not accusing anyone of doing it. I know it has happened, not necessarily here, but in other places. People are working out business deals. People are thinking about the home budget. People are thinking about what I'm going to do when I get out of here. And you know what happens when you do that? The Word of God just goes right by. I was listening to a preacher just yesterday, and I thought, well, I can listen to him and do something else. And I'm, you know, writing and doing something else, and then all of a sudden I said, what'd he say? And I had to just back it up and listen again. We just can't do that. And so many times we let other things, cares of this life and things like that that he named there. 2 Timothy chapter 3 verse 4 says in the last days men will be lovers of pleasures more than lovers of God. And then in Luke chapter 21 verse 34 Jesus said this, And take heed to yourselves lest at any time your hearts be overcharged with surfeiting and drunkenness and cares of this life so that day come upon you unawares. He's talking about the time of his coming. And he says some of God's people will be so caught up in living this life. Remember what he said in Matthew 24? He said, in such an hour as you think not. And what he was saying there is when you're not thinking about the Lord's return, guess what's going to happen? He's going to return. That day's going to come upon you just like a thief in the night. That's what he was saying. But you see all of these things, and they're all connected to the lust of the flesh, all of these things can keep us from hearing the word of God and from serving God. Then there's the deceitfulness of wealth. Now, God's not against wealth, just the deceitfulness of wealth, okay? That's an inordinate desire to, to just be able to have enough money to afford all of the pleasures you can think about in life. Listen to 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 9. But they that be rich fall into temptation and a snare and into many foolish and hurtful lusts which drown men in destruction and perdition. And please don't ever misquote this verse 10 I hear so many people misquote verse 10 and they say, well, money's the root of all evil. It is not. Amen. Money is a tool. It's a tool God will allow you to use. But what is the root of all evil? For the love of money, making that your priority, covetousness, if you will, not being satisfied with what God gives you. For the love of money is the root of all evil, which while some coveted after they have erred from the faith and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. And then he just goes on in the book of Colossians and names desires and passions in regard to other pursuits. Mortify therefore, you count them as dead by the way. Mortify therefore your members which are upon the earth fornication, uncleanness, inordinate affection, evil concupiscence, and covetousness which is idolatry. He names all of these things that come right out of the lust of the flesh. And you have that lust in you and I have that lust in me. Amen. Well then there's the lust of the eyes. One of my favorite verses to mention is in the book of Joshua. Talking about the lust of the eyes, Joshua chapter 7 and verse 20. Remember a man named Achan? A-C-H-A-N, Achan. Achan took some gold and some silver and a Babylonian garment from Jericho after God had said, don't take anything. Okay? Achan, if God said, don't take anything, why did you take these things from Jericho? Joshua 7, verse 20. And Achan answered Joshua and said, 
Now here's verse 21. When I saw eyes, because that's what the eye is talking about, the physical eye. And when I saw among the spoils a goodly Babylonian garment. Let me pause right there to ask you this. Where's he going to wear it? I've got to have me a thousand dollar and I don't know what the big brand is now suit, right? Where am I going to wear it? On Sunday to impress you? Whoopee. See, I was going to say ladies saying they got to have this big fancy dress that costs a bunch of money, but I know better than to mention that, okay? Amen. So I'm going to talk about my $1,000 suit or whatever. But where's he going to wear a Babylonian garment, right? He said, I saw it. And 200 shekels of silver and a wedge of gold of 50 shekels weight. Look at this order, the way this goes. And I coveted and took them. I saw, I coveted, I took them. What was the quote I read to you at the introduction? What's wrong with God's people today? We go in Walmart or wherever and we look at all these things we see and we can't have and we want them, okay? You know what we're doing? We're seeing, we're coveting and we're going to figure out a way to get them. And he says, and behold, here's what he did with all the silver. Where's he going to spend the silver and gold anyway? Right? You're not going to wear the Babylonian garment. You're not going to spend the silver and gold, but he took it because he coveted after it. And look what he says now. And behold, they are hid in the earth in the midst of my tent and the silver under it. I stole it out of Jericho because God said don't take it. And now I've hidden it. Not wearing it. I'm not using it. And we see and we covet and we take. 1 Samuel chapter 8 verses 4 and 5. Again, the lust of the eyes. Remember, Israel's living under a theocracy right now at this point in 1 Samuel. God is their ruler. God is their king. Yes, there are priests and, and so forth, but God is their king. And here in chapter 8, verse 4, Then all the elders of Israel gathered themselves together and came to Samuel unto Ramah and said unto him, Behold, thou art old, and thy sons walk not in thy ways. Now make us a king to judge us like all the nations. You know what they did? They looked around to Paris and London and, you know, and said, we won't be like them. I know they didn't look at Paris and London. You understand what I'm saying there. They looked around them at the other nations and said, they've got a king. And look what their king does. And we, so we want to be just like, you know, what nations are looking at? Pagan nations. Ungodly nations. And they're saying, we want to be like them. You know what's happened in America today? We've looked at the European nations, ungodly nations, and said, we want to be like them. Amen. Where's the seat of fashion, ladies? Paris. Supposedly. Paris, right? Okay. <laughs> Need I say more? <laughs> you know? Have you seen some of the stuff coming out of there? I wouldn't wear it. Well, that's... <laughs> it took a minute, didn't it? <laughs> My wife wouldn't either. But they looked around and they looked at the other nations and said, we want to be like these other nations. Why? Because they use the physical eyesight and it's through our eyes that inner perceptions are formed as we view the world about us. I've belabored this point, but I'm going to hit it one more time. Why do young people, especially young ladies, want to go pay $100 for a brand new pair of jeans that have holes all down the legs? Because they saw it and they saw somebody they considered a person of influence doing it and they said, I want to be like them. There's so many things that are done to attract attention. 
And that's one of the things I think. What our eyes delight to look upon is indicative of our spiritual condition. A worldly-minded believer will look at that which pleases the flesh. It's what he'll fix his eyes on. Back in children's chapel many times we would sing, Oh, be careful little eyes what you see. Oh, be careful little eyes what you see. For your father up above is looking down in love. Oh, be careful little eyes what you see. In Matthew chapter 6, verse 22, we're encouraged to have a single eye in contrast to an evil eye. It says, the light of the body is the eye. If therefore thine eye be single, thy whole body shall be full of light. The idea of purity in your vision and what you're looking at and what you're fixing your gaze upon. Let that fill your mind and then your whole body will be full of that light, as he says. But if thine eye be evil, that is diseased, affected, whatever, thy whole body shall be full of darkness. If therefore the light that is in thee be darkness, how great is that darkness? Some people think they're looking at the light when all they're seeing is darkness. Well, I'm a good person. I'm a good church. I do this and this and this. I'm not so bad. And they can't even see the light. Think of your eyes as a lamp that provides light for your body. There's some things you can't help seeing. Do you, you realize that, right? <laughs> you just go out in this world, there's some things you can't help seeing. You don't want to see them. But here's the problem. Many times we go back for a second look. Did I see what I thought I saw? I'm going to look again. And sometimes again and again and again, the eyes are singled out as the part of the body that communicates the worldly desires to our hearts and to our souls. We look upon something. We covet it. And we take it. That's why Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5 and verse 27, you've heard it was said by them of old time, thou shalt not commit adultery. But I say unto you that whosoever looketh on a woman to lust after her hath committed adultery with her already in his heart. It's just the look. You don't have to commit the physical act to commit adultery. And the same could be saying for women, right? You look on a man to lust after him. You've committed adultery with him in your heart. But it's the look. It's not necessarily that. It's what's in the heart. It's a matter of the heart. And the eyes are the gateway to our understanding. I love to look into people's eyes when I'm talking to them. And I want people to look into my eyes. There's an old saying, the eyes are the gateway to the soul. I partly believe that, folks. And I've looked into some eyes. All I saw looking back was demonic stare. And then I've looked into some eyes. You see eyes of love. Our intellect or the disposition of our heart is related to what our eyes look upon. And so Israel couldn't recognize it. Listen to what Paul said of Israel in Romans chapter 8 verse 11. According as it is written, God hath given them the spirit of slumber, eyes that they should not see and ears that they should not hear unto this day. They refused to hear the truth. So God said, I'm just going to blind you to the truth. And many, many are lost today because they're blinded to the truth. Ephesians chapter 1 verse 17 present God's desire through Paul for us that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory may give unto you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him, the eyes of your understanding being enlightened that ye may know what is the hope of his calling and what the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints and what is the exceeding greatness of his power to usward who believe according to the working of his mighty power. But how does he say that happened? Your eyes are open. How do you get your eyes open? Get into the word of God. Study the Word of God. Pray. 
Put prayer and Bible study together. Don't forsake them. And God will open your eyes. So there's a lust of the flesh. There's a lust of the eyes. And I told Joni I was going to call this today my pride sermon. Some of you will get that. Some of you won't. There's the pride of life. Okay. Proverbs chapter 16 verse 5. Everyone that is proud in heart is an abomination to the Lord. Though hand join in hand, he shall not be unpunished. What does he say the pride are? An abomination to the Lord. Proverbs 21.4. A high look and a proud heart and the plowing of the wicked is sin. A what? A proud heart. A high look. Proverbs 28.25. He that is of a proud heart stirreth up strife. You know where most problems come from? People filled with pride. But he that putteth his trust in the Lord shall be made fat. The pride of life. Well, where is that found? Well, you look at John chapter 8. Jesus is talking to the Jews and he tells them that they need to follow him and, and, and so forth. We can go there and read right quickly. John chapter 8. And let's see where we want to begin reading. Verse 31, Then said Jesus to those Jews which believed on him, If ye continue in my word, then are ye my disciples indeed. And ye shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. And they answered him, listen to this, listen to this pride. We be Abraham's seed, and were never in bondage to any man. How sayest thou, ye shall be made free? Isn't it amazing how pride makes you forget the past? Had they ever been in bondage? Oh, just to the Egyptians and sometimes to the Philistines and sometimes to this group and that group. They forgot. We're Abraham's seed. We better be careful. Now listen. Somebody said, what would you be if you weren't a Baptist? I said, in heaven. Amen. Okay. But I tell you what, we'd better not get so arrogant in that that we get like these. Okay? I'm not denying anything that we believe. I'm just saying we better be careful. Don't let pride enter in. Proverbs 16, verse 18. Pride goeth before destruction and an haughty spirit before fall. What is pride? It's thinking oneself to be something he's not. It's haughtiness. It's arrogance. Hey, look at me. I'm somebody. Y'all all better respect me because I'm me, okay? That's pride. Pride is when we judge ourselves better than somebody else. I'm going to tell you, I am not better than one single person in this world. I don't care whether they're in the White House or they're in the homeless camp. I'm not better than anybody. I'm better off than a lot of people because I'm going to heaven when I die and a lot of folks aren't. But pride... Pride goes before fall. It's arrogance. You know what is in the middle of pride? I know this is not good grammar, but I is. Okay? P-R-I-D-E. I is in the middle of pride. James chapter 4, verse 16. Remember the man he's talking about there? I'm going to go into such and such a city, and I'm going to continue their year, and I'm going to buy and sell, and I'm going to get gain. Right? James says, but now you rejoice in your boastings. All such rejoicing is evil. Talking about vaunting ourselves up. Pushing ourselves out. Trying to build ourselves up in somebody else's confidence. 
Rich man of Luke chapter 12, beginning in verse 17. We're not going to read those verses, but turn there and read them sometime. But the rich man there in Luke chapter 12 said, remember he said he had a great harvest. Who gave him the harvest? God did. And he said this, I've done well. I'm going to say to my soul, soul, you've done well. And then he said, listen to the, listen to the arrogance here. This will I do. I will pull down my barns and build greater. There will I bestow all my fruits and my goods. And I will say to my soul, so thou hast much goods laid up for many years. Take thine ease, eat, drink, and be merry. I, 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 I. But God said, thou fool, this night thy soul shall be required of thee. Then who shall those things be which thou hast provided? There are preachers to pastor big congregations and sometimes they think to themselves, look what I've done. Never, ever give this pastor credit for anything that God has done here. Amen. Folks, it's not me. It's not you. It's not the name Bethel. It is God that blesses this church. And we better always Remember that. Don't be like this rich man that said, I have done this. No, God gave him the increase. And God said, tonight your life's going to be required of you. A proud person is a boaster. He's a braggart. And it's a condition that we find in Romans chapter 1. When they knew God, they glorified him not as God. And that's a condition that exists in America today. We know there's a God, but we don't glorify him as God. You cannot be filled with pride and keep God in his proper position in your life. Amen. If you're filled with pride, you're number one. God says, I won't be number two. I will be number one or I won't be. So many of God's people get filled up with pride. Second Timothy chapter three tells us that this God rejecting pride is a condition of the last days. This know also in the last days, perilous time, difficult to be born will come. Why? Because men will be lovers of their own selves, covetous, boasters, proud, and blasphemers. What the word of God teaches us is to be humble, especially before God. Because the scripture says, God resisteth the proud. And giveth grace to the humble. And folks, I need all the grace I can get. I don't know about you, but I need all the grace I can get. The arrogant person becomes a hypocrite, pretending to be what he is not, just so he may be admired of other people. Concentrating on satisfying the flesh, allowing our eyes to dwell on external things, excessive enjoyment of passions do not have their origin in God. They have their origin in the flesh. And if the flesh dominates a person, that person needs to examine themselves, especially if they claim to be a child of God and say, am I right with God? Lord, reveal to me any pride, any lust that is in my heart. Guard ourselves uh, against any kind of deception that could cause us to justify living a worldly lifestyle. Avoid the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. Here's some questions to consider. Do I concentrate on satisfying the lusts of my flesh on a daily basis? What attracts the attention of my eyes as a child of God? Am I proud about myself? Do I give myself credit for things that God does? 
See, John says all the way back here in our text that we read early on in chapter 2 and in verse 15, listen to what he says, Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. Why? If any man have, this is agape love, self-sacrificing, if any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. If you have a self-sacrificing love for the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, the things of the world, John says you don't have the self-sacrificing love of God in your life. And we live in a material world today where the one thing that people want to listen to is the almighty dollar. The only answer is the exercise of true faith which results in a transformed life. 2 Corinthians 5, 17, Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he's what? He's a new creation, a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things have become new. If we're in Christ, we want to satisfy and please Him. We want to live for Him. There's some things we've got to put away. And there's some things we've got to put on. Don't let yourself get caught in one of these three traps. I said there's a significance to the picture because the mouse thinks he's getting something for nothing and it's going to cost him his life. And there's many, many of God's people who are giving up their lives for Christ today so they can have a little bit of the world, which what's going to happen? They're going to die and leave it. Christ is going to come back and this whole thing's going to be melted down. And there'll be a new heaven and a new earth in which dwelleth righteousness.